On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, Michelle M. Miller joins me for You Must Remember This, episode 348. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahovia, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Michelle M. Miller is back for today's episode. Dr. Miller is a professor of psychological sciences and president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. Dr. Miller completed her PhD in cognitive psychology and behavioral neuroscience at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her research interests include memory, attention, and the impacts of technology on learning and the mind. Dr. Miller co-created the First Year Learning Initiative at Northern Arizona University and is active in course redesign, serving as a redesign scholar for the National Center for Academic Transformation. She is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and has written about evidence-based pedagogy in scholarly as well as general interest publications, including College Teaching, Change, the Magazine of Higher Learning, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and The Conversation. Michelle is currently working on a book for the University of West Virginia Press tentatively titled Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology, What the Science of Memory Tells Us About Teaching, Learning, and Thriving in a Wired World. Michelle, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks. It's great to be here. I saw on Twitter you sharing that you had developed a new talk. And I instantly had a song come into my head. Do you know what song it was by chance? I think I have a feeling. <laughs> you must remember this. <laughs> so, so I have to know, did you think of the song first or the title first? Or, or it's a chicken egg thing we can't quite identify here today. Well, you know, it, it did grow out of uh, some talks that I even did in the community years ago for uh, our Science on Tap event, which is on pause right now. But uh, years ago, I called it uh, everything you wanted to know about memory, but forgot to ask. There's there's lots of different ways. So this is a little bit more refined version of this same kind of topic that I've been talking about for years, but it's really come together in this brand new way. And yeah, you must remember this. There's so much that we could talk about. And I know we're already both thinking, how do we do this? Because <laughs> it's a, it's a designed to be a 75 minute talk when this podcast is not designed to be a 75 minute podcast. But I, I, I just want to start with you sharing a bit about some of the ways in which conversations around lower stakes testing that you know, what that has helped with and small stakes assignments and, and a lot of a lot of these emerging practices in teaching, sometimes then I know from learning from you make us think, well, then it's not important then to memorize things. And that that's that's quite the opposite of you, what you'd like to share. So talk a little bit about kind of what we're learning about learning, but how that doesn't mean that we have to then say memorization 
it just isn't important. Right. So really go finding that great middle path. That's so, so often what we're doing when we try to bring learning sciences into our teaching, but still, you know, make it absolutely unique to our teaching. So I, uh, unique to our students. And so I think that's perhaps part of a, a familiar dynamic in a way. So, you know, some of this also goes back to the, the very first conversations that I started having with fellow faculty. And when I was lucky enough to, to reach out to, to some leaders in the teaching and learning space about this topic. So, you know, when I first started really saying, oh, I want to reach out to fellow faculty about cognitive psychology. So the findings of, of my discipline of psychology and flow that out into this, this great stuff, uh, marry it with some of the really neat innovations and new ways of looking at teaching and learning in higher education. And, it, it, you know, right away, I knew that memory was a hot topic. And you're right, it, it did sometimes come up when we talked about more concrete things like why should we have frequent low stakes testing in a course? And, you know, I would notice it, I would be, when I would be able to be in front of a group, and this was maybe 10, 12 years ago that I really started doing this work, you know, I'd, I'd start talking about, well, memory and memory research. I mean, in cognitive psychology, that is what we have studied more than anything else. I mean, this this is really at the, at the core of it. And so naturally, I'm jumping into that. and I would say sort of the M word, M, you know, memory or memorization. And there would be a few people in, you know, in the group who would start, you'd, you'd feel that sort of mm, disapproval coming off of them. And I'd say, oh, I, I must have said something wrong. But then, it, you know, so, so for some people, they had this very negative reaction to it of saying, well, you know, shouldn't we be moving away from that in our teaching and learning? And then at the same time, people would come up to me after talks like this and say, hey, you know, I, I teach anatomy and physiology or I, I teach electrical engineering or something like that. And my gosh, you, you came out and said it. What I have sort of not said for all this time and I've avoided asking about, which is the memory component of, of teaching and learning. So uh, there, there's a lot of different dynamics that go into it. But at, at the end of the day, I kind of recommitted to saying, okay, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way to, to frame this in a way that's appealing to people who really do care about teaching and learning, but to get into some of the nuance. And then lastly, to get into the concrete aspects of how we reinforce memory and even memorization is sometimes in our teaching. Now, the second half of the title of your newly developed talk is Why Memory is Important for Learning, Even in the Age of Google. And I don't know if the track I'm about to go on is going to resonate with you, but one of the things I love to teach, I teach a technology and leadership class, and we talk about personal knowledge mastery. One aspect of personal knowledge mastery is introducing them to the idea of digital bookmarks. As you can imagine, digital bookmarks can be sorted, they can have tags, and I get often a lot of resistance saying, if I wanted to know something, I would just search for it on Google. And I and I it's it's very hard for me to explain. I, I hopefully I'm getting a little better at it, Michelle, <laughs> but it's hard to explain. Yeah, but see, you don't always know what you want to search for. Your brain, it just, it just doesn't work that way with some of this stuff. I, one very personal example, I think I've given it before on the show, but I, we had infertility in our family for many years. 
there's a lot of garbage out there, Michelle, on the internet about infertility. I don't need to revisit it. Oh, yeah. I, I found those treasures. And then not only did they help me, both from just a personal standpoint, the grief of it and that kind of thing, but also from an informational standpoint. But then I was I had this top collection of things that would be helpful. And again, that's a very personal thing. But within our disciplines, of course, sort of building that network of knowledge. Now, again, I mentioned, I don't know if this is going to resonate. I, I sense Michelle, that the next thing is then memorization, because having it tucked away in my digital bookmarking tool, I still there's still a a barrier for me in terms of that that opportunity for that deeper learning. So am I on the right track that this is kind of on the way to what you're advocating? Yeah. And, you know, you're bringing up yet another kind of layer that's introduced by technology. And, and yes, and I, that I was kind of alluding to in my own way with that little tagline of even in the age of Google, you we need to know things. But but you're kind of talking about, yeah, this this other layer of even knowing what the best sources are and the way to search is also something that is part of, of knowledge and learning and knowledge as you call it, knowledge management in a way in today's world. And yes, if students are re, I mean, heaven forbid, they, they're, they're researching for things that they're going to need over and over as they progress in a discipline. It, it, there's, there's many reasons why it's not going to work. Now, I, I will say that, that what you're describing does remind me of one uh, intriguing line of, of research, we're actually going, it's funny, we're going to talk about this today in one of my uh, seminar classes, uh, a line of research that quite provocatively and pretty convincingly showed that when we expect to be able to get back to something, like if we've saved it in a particular folder, it, it sort of dampens or inhibits our memory for it in the moment. We don't, what we call, encode it as readily. And this was very systematically manipulated in this series of studies where people were, they were, you know, told some things about trivia facts, really kind of obscure stuff. And they worked it all out and they said, okay, you can either save these in your folder and you can have them later, but you have to remember the name of the folder. Or you can, you know, just so you know, we're going to erase all this, but we will have a test at the end of this, this study. And yeah, people were, if you're really good at remembering and saying, okay, it was in the folder called, you know, bird facts or something, then you didn't remember the facts themselves. Now, is this a, a huge hefty effect that, that you're just really going to, it's going to leap out of you in real life? Maybe not. And, it, you know, this is not the converging lines of lots and lots of evidence, but it, it was a well put together study. So, so we have to keep that in mind too, that, you know, while that may have suited your, your purposes to have those bookmarks, memory for the facts themselves might've been a little bit inhibited by going through that process. But as, you know, as those authors also point out, I thought, you know, one of the reasons I assigned my students to read that article is that they say, you know what, memory's always been collective. It's always been shared. You know, the net is not necessarily dramatically different than knowing, oh, hey, you know, my dad knows the brand of paint that I should buy or, you know, there's certain things that I'm I'm never going to remember because my husband remembers them and, and vice versa. So maybe they, they say it may be part of that, too, not some just, you know, one one time thing that's just specific to Google. So, so yeah, the, but that's uh, what you're describing is a very deliberate way of talking about what do you need to know at what level do you need to know it? And you've really thought that through as you, as part of your teaching. Yeah, I think you're, 
I didn't know about that study, but it doesn't surprise me at all that because I can see it in my own brain that you do. I mean, and, and that that is not necessarily a bad thing if it's not something that you need to know. Like you said, it's all of these is in terms of degrees. If we have decided that something is central enough to a discipline, to a skill attempting to be taught, what have you. What then does your research tell us about sort of the the best ways to go about that? Right. So as with a lot of aspects of very, you know, mindful learner-centered teaching, it does first come down to that process of, of very consciously deciding, okay, what do students need to know? Like say the back of their hand, you do not pull out a phone thinking, thinking that through. And, you know, for many of us, we, we may not have, have done that for, for particular courses. Even if we've taught these courses for years and years, we maybe have never reflected on that. So I think it does start with a reflection component. So we're not just kind of saying, well, I'm going to be like what, what I did when I was a beginning teacher, I just say, what am I going to put on this test? Uh, I'm going to open up the glossary in the back and start kind of picking things. So be mindful about that. Now that's beyond that. Once we've kind of zeroed in on, okay, here's what students do need to know for fluent, good, you know, useful practice in a discipline. How do we then make sure that we do not have to spend all of our study time and, and interaction time just on, on those things. So tapping into the findings, the core findings of applied memory research, which is this wonderful kind of aspect or, you know, aspect of the literature that's out there. So top of the mind, retrieval practice, you know, ask any cognitive psychologist that um, we, we will evangelize about this. And it's, it's so wonderful because this is such a success story. Again, when I was, when I think back to, you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago, if I said, hey, Retrieval practice is this process where you actively pull information out of memory. It can be a quiz. It can be a formal test of some kind, but it can also be sneakier stuff like, hey, let's all have a brain dump and write down what we remember. All that's retrieval practice, right? You know, if I said that, people would sort of stop in their tracks and say, that's very counterintuitive. That can't be what? But now when you say it, then more and more hands go up and say, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of this. Or sometimes it's called the testing effect. And we found that this is just like a super accelerator to memory. And, you know, these days I, I, I know I'm always referencing this one example about, you know, online shopping and you've got your, your credit card and it's got the three numbers on the back and who you always have to type them in. Right. And if you always pull out your card and look at the numbers, you're not going to remember them. But if you just leave that card, you know, face up for one or two times and just try to pull it out of memory and type it in, it, it actually, you'll start to remember them a lot better. And you may make a mistake or two here and there, but that's what we find as well is even when students answer a question incorrectly, then if they have the opportunity to go back and review, then you have a better chance of actually picking it up. So that's one of the biggest, you know, things we can share with students, we can build into our courses, we can pick technologies that are really geared to retrieval practice, all that. So that's a, a very, a very big one. But there are some other other principles as well, ones that uh, many skilled teachers have probably hit on intuitively in their own practices. I'm smiling so big right now, because I'm remembering back to it was a very early episode, I got to speak with Robert Bjork, who's at UCLA and runs a memory lab there. And he, I still, I don't forget his quote, forgetting is the friend of learning. 
And I recall very vividly standing up in front of hundreds of people and not remembering his name. (laughs) It is rather ironic to not get the name of the memory researcher you're trying so hard. Guess what? Never forgotten it since. And but I will say that sometimes when we're able to model this with our students, because I forget stuff, you forget stuff, (laughs) Michelle, then they can see that, oh, wow, this actually does work. But that everybody forgets stuff, but it doesn't have to be this high anxiety producing thing. And so the the other thing I, I'd love to have you share a little bit is how interleaving and how spacing also kind of get together and do a dance with retrieval practice. Love the love the imagery here. Well, you know, interleaving is is one that does spark so much curiosity and so much interest among you know those of us who are really looking to innovate with teaching and learning these days. So here's the thing, though, is that it's it's a little tricky. I mean, people think the term interleaving, and it's a very you know evocative term. We think, oh, that means switching it up. So, you know, 10 minutes on my English class and five minutes on my math class. And here we go back to English. And now I'm going to, you know, work on my research methods class. That's technically not what interleaving really is. Now, you know, as for the value of taking breaks or setting something aside when you hit a hit an impasse, there's, there's a case to be made for that. Technically speaking, interleaving is really most relevant when we're selecting from uh, different ways of solving a problem, or a, a lot of the research is actually on um, learning to identify and classify kind of I, I, examples of categories. So, and that may, it's a little involved, but, you know, like, for example, a lot of the research will have people study different art styles and different artists, and that's a category, right? And there's examples within the category. They're not identical, but they share some features. And your mind and your brain are kind of doing some, some computations that are still not totally well understood when you're learning to do that. When I see a new painting and say, okay, how, if I have to slot this in a, in a style at an artist, what do we do? Or biological categories, bird examples, or some, some neat research that's on, all right, what, what general kind of a bird is it? What specifically, what bird is it? So if you've learned on this set of examples, can I show you a new example and can you do that? So that's not everything we're doing in teaching, but it's, it, it is occasionally what people are doing. And so here's where interleaving comes in. Um, people do tend to retain more and to pick up this, this learning more quickly when they study in this interleaf fashion where maybe I'm going to study some paintings from this artist and a few from that artist, and I'm going to toggle back over to this kind instead of saying, okay, I'm going to sit down with all the impressionists and I'm going to spend an hour on them and then switch gears. And, you know, that wouldn't be that big a deal, except that that's the way the textbooks are organized. And that also tends to give us what a lot of ineffective study techniques do, which is a false sense of fluency or security. (laughs) You know, after I've seen the 20th impressionist, I'm kind of going, I got it, but maybe I don't, I don't got it. (laughs) If I, if I saw that counter uh, sort of juxtaposed against a completely different painting, it would put, it would be a little bit more taxing for me to go back and figure that out. Now, the other big thing is that interleaving is still a, a work, a scientific work in progress. There's Resources goes back quite a bit. We're not talking about just one or two studies, but we're also not talking about this big 
deep well of, of research that we have, for example, with with retrieval practice. So yeah, that's that's something I think is also something that I think you know if this is the kind of learning problem, uh, the categories or uh, different ways of solving problems. Uh, you know that if that applies to you, and if so, yeah, take a look at some of the interleaving stuff and see if that would affect how you say set up a homework set or something like that. What I've tended to do in the past is I'll often create flashcards, maybe using a tool like Quizlet, just as as an example, there are a lot of of tools out there. But then start with, you know, this this is where we just looked at ethical thinkers and frameworks. And then we're going to go into this new area, but I keep this in the set, I keep it in the deck, and I bring it forward. And a lot of these tools are actually designed to already do this for us, where if I've had a lot of success on one of the cards, I can mark it as I got it, or it can mark it for me as I got it. And I might see it less frequently and that kind of thing. Should I be thinking more carefully about what goes in that ever growing deck in the sense of because I think I might be, <laughs> I might be doing and I and I appreciate what you said about it's a growing area. There's no absolute right or absolute wrong, but I think I might be getting bird examples in there with art examples. You know, so is there something I should be thinking about in terms of that as I, you know, help to to try to support students in this way? Yeah, you know, and there's this is one of those kind of inside baseball issues, but it is a, a very practical one. Do you, it's just simply, do you drop an example out of a deck if you've answered it correctly once? There is a school of thought that says actually. No, even if you've answered a question uh, or a type of question correctly, you know, once, twice or, or something like that, that there's still benefit to the retrieval practice. So I might balance it too. Yes, if it's if it's key, if it's an absolute core, that might need might be good to stay in that deck till the last day of the, the course. I think, for example, in psychology with research methods or something like that. P values. That's a statistical decision. You know, this decision point. It's not a complicated thing to learn, but you have to know this, and students forget. That is a bedrock thing that maybe should be in there all the time. But but there are probably other terms I might want to drop out if they're a lower priority. And and then other people will say, well, it's you know, from an efficiency standpoint, it makes sense to you know concentrate more on what you missed. And sort of keep those in the deck, even if the deck is is more of a figurative thing. And I I think as students get that metacognitive savvy and insight developing, that's something that they're they are probably naturally going to do as a function of, of quizzes and tests. And that's the that's yet another wonderful thing that tests do is we can't just sort of gravitate unconsciously towards the stuff we we already got, which I would I always did that in studying when I was a college student. It's like, oh, I like this part. I'm going to stay on this. And I'll just sort of pretend that this isn't over here. Tests really, they 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 lay it on the line for you. You look at it and go, yep, I got that one wrong again. So so there's a real balance there. I like your example of the teaching a research methods class, and you, you mentioned the p-value. I don't think that you're saying keep the quantitative stuff separate from the qualitative stuff, because how it's going to show up to me in real life as a researcher, I might be doing a mixed method. So I, because oh, again, I think I might be caught up on the categories of stuff. Okay, to mixed ca categories, yes? Yes, yes. Mixing categories during the study phase, or maybe a way, you know, a way to make this uh, intuitive for, for some, say, in STEM disciplines. Um, you know, back when I was working with a lot of faculty in one of our, our uh, first year programs, 
I would hear some version of this from, from different STEM, STEM faculty they say, well, students come into my course, a chemistry course, something like that with, they've, they've got all the, all this math coursework under their belts. You know, they've got the prereqs, they've got good grades. We know that they can do the mechanics of the problem. The issue is, is when I haven't set the problem up for them and said, okay, it's this kind of problem. Mm. So that's where they get stuck. And, and, you know, they would be so frustrated and and be like, why, what is, what is it with today's students? Uh, Well, this is, that's a sort of a practice issue. You could sort of just say, well, that is a skill unto itself identifying and setting up the problem. And, and we see versions of that. I saw it in research methods too. of just like, first, you got to figure out how to break this down and identify the parts of it or, you know, figure out what statistical test is appropriate. Then you can go run and do the test. Well, if students are never in that position of, I got to set it up for myself and it's messy and it's frustrating. And I just want to get to that solution part. If they're not sitting in that in that stage, well, what do you know? Like anything else, we don't practice it. It doesn't happen. Well, it's such a good example, too, because we wouldn't want to be giving the impression that retrieval practice is only practiced in something akin to flashcards, you know, that, that there's different ways. And you're so it's that practice part. <laughs> well, what is it that you're <laughs> that you're trying to practice? Anyway, I know you had something to share about spacing as well. And now that we've kind of touched on these other dance partners for <laughs> retrieval practice. <laughs> So right, spacing is is another one of these that I think a lot of students hit on for themselves, faculty hit on for themselves, although they may not really, you know, have a this cool grasp of like why it why it works. And it, and it works for various reasons. Now, spacing is is sometimes called distributed practice, and that's a that's a really descriptive term. It, it's sort of like the anti-cramming principle that if you recurse or retrieve or study something in small small bites, more distributed over as much time as you can, that you know each each one of those bites will deliver more <laughs> than that it would if it were aggregated into one big mass. And so, yeah, we tell students, oh, don't cram. They may, they may not really understand that. It's not just about sort of an organizational issue. It's also a memory issue. And, and yeah, getting more out of the time. And you've described Quizlets, for example. I mean, those are great because you can do those while you're waiting for your Zoom meeting to start. So I think as students can kind of start to develop some of these neat techniques for themselves and practices for themselves, they they also hit on, well, hey, I, you know, I, I can fit this in here and fit that in there. Now, if we're talking about academic work where I'm really getting into getting involved in producing something, you know, I'm writing a paper, I'm setting up a study, I'm conducting analyses. Well, there, you know, that's the takeaway is is not memory. So I'm not saying, oh, you know, work on your paper for 10 minutes and then, you know, put it down. There are times when you do need momentum and you do need that, I guess what Cal Newport calls the deep work. But again, when we're just talking about let's establish, get those those basic facts down in this course, that's where spacing is is absolutely your friend. So we've talked about different ways of enhancing our memory. I know a big part of your work then is that that's not where it's over. It's not an either or. It's not that I either focus on memorization or deep learning. Could you talk about the connection between memorization and that deeper learning? 
Right. You know, or another metaphor is, is higher learning. Um, I think it's it's wonderful that, you know, Bloom's taxonomy, that now famous pyramid. I mean, it's set up like a pyramid for a reason. Right. There's there's a hierarchy here and that's fine. It's great that we all know about Bloom and we're thinking about it, but it does. You know, I think quite naturally we, we want to shoot straight to the top. We want to, we want to hit the, the good stuff. You know, I want my students to be doing critical thinking and analyzing and finding different ways to interpret or critique articles that they read and setting up their own studies someday. I want that. I want that really badly. But I do think that we've we've sort of many of us have absorbed. I know I absorbed early on a real false dichotomy. Uh, well, do you want this, you know, lame thing where they can tell you where Sigmund Freud was born, or do you want this thing where they can critique his theory? And, and this is a timely example. We actually touched on this a week or two ago in one of my introduction to psychology courses. Well, you know, if I say, hey, I, I want you to be able to, to look at Sigmund Freud's psychodynamic theory of the mind and look at how that's really reflects his culture and it's not universal, you need to know where he was and I had a student, I was talking about, you know, from Austria and blah, blah, and they in chat go, wait a minute, he was from Austria? What? <laughs> I didn't know that. So, you know, these things do naturally go together. And I would invite all of your listeners to, again, kind of reflect, sit back and think, what, where are those touch points between things that I, I, I really just, just know, again, not without, without Googling it, and things that, how that complements these, these higher things that I really want students to know. So there's that kind of really intuitive way we can come at this and start to break down that dichotomy and see how these complement each other. But there's also, so again, more emerging research out there. Uh, a lot of it is actually anchored in looking at retrieval practice. But I guess the bottom line of some of these newer studies is that they show when students are doing more think, study practices that are more efficient for memory like retrieval practice instead of just passively review. When they're doing that, you see a quicker shift towards some aspects of higher thinking that we can actually pin down. So things like being able to draw inferences when you're given a set of facts saying, okay, you're looking at this, therefore this. Now, I want to caution people here that there's, there's not really a study or a line of research emerging about thinking skills in general. And in fact, I'm not sure that those that, that sort of global I can think about anything ability exists. I'm just going to say that. But in these very specific things that we can pin down, we can measure, that's pretty exciting, right? So when I, I probably what's going on is I'm establishing this more strongly. You know, I've got down path these, these facts about Freud or I know about the impressionists. Now I can and think about them more. So, so there's also that argument to be made. I experimented a bit with having students memorize the seven habits of highly effective people. That's from a book by Stephen Covey from long ago. And the reason why I had them do and, and you talked about this, Michelle, the importance of reflecting on what's important. It wasn't important. I never gave them a test that was a graded test that they had to show me that skill, but we would do regular practice. I mean, you can do that pretty quick in our within our class sessions. But the reason why I did it was because otherwise I was not sure that it would be enough in their mind to be able to looking for the ways that these habits did or did not show up in their life. Because a lot of it, what was 
graded. What was assessed was being able to say, one of them is be proactive. And so being able to see examples of that showing up in their life, in, in their lives and in the lives of other people that they know, it's really hard to do that kind of reflective work. And again, I'm speaking not as a researcher, this is very anecdotal, but if they're not already in your mind to be thinking about it. And since I don't have the opportunity to, you know, send them all little messages to their phones or watch it be, you know, those, those studies where they're like, how are you feeling right now? You know, I didn't, that wasn't set up for this given class. It seemed like that was a way from my understanding of how to help them have that deeper reflection. I don't know if that, if that sits well with, with uh, this example, but I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd throw that out there and see what you think. Oh, well, you know, among other things, I think you hit on, other than retrieval practice, one of the very powerful things that we do do to get students to really, really remember, you know, Stephen Covey's principles, like five years later, 10 years later, they're going to, to, to know that and to understand them you ask them to link it to their own lives. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think you're kind of doing both. I mean, here, there's that dance again, we're doing the tango <laughs> and uh, here's, okay. I remember what the principles are and here's like, Oh, here's what they look like. Here's what I care about them. Both of those are going to carry each other forward. So uh, we call it the self-reference effect, hugely powerful. And you know, who, who couldn't stand to, to bring this into their classroom or to say, okay, you give me three examples of whether this has ever applied to you. And, and if not, you know, let's, let's talk about that too. So, right. You, you are getting those down pat. And I think, you know, really, a really conscious teacher too, they you know it's not just enough to say, okay, now my exam is list, list the principles. Maybe it has that, but it's, it's both. And then we also want to look at, the application of it, and uh, my my money would be on the on the uh, active learning that your your students years from now will have that deeper understanding and also be able to characterize. Even if they don't remember all seven, they can probably get a few of them, and they can characterize that group in general. That's what we want, right? The reflection is just so key, and we also need to be doing it with each other, with colleagues, and then also I say colleagues kind of specific to our uh, universities where we work, but also collectively in our disciplines to be having an interdisciplinary. I mean, is there, is there a place where this kind of reflection doesn't bode well? I mean, really just the, so crucial to be thinking and talking about those things. And that's, I think, one of the ways that your research and in this area is just so hopeful because we can get so many different examples that can both challenge us and inspire us in these areas. And speaking of which, I guess before we get to the recommendations segment, I'd love to hear from you if there's anything that's really inspiring you. And you, I mean, you've already shared a number of examples in this episode, but is there anything that I didn't ask you about where you think, wow, this practice is inspiring me or this person is inspiring me or, you know, here's, here's kind of some of the thinking I'm doing in these areas that's really sort of creating a spark in in your own work you know in, in the faculty who who are so you know patient with my follow-ups that i that i do get to work with now now remotely that is a big inspiration you know each group that i get to work with bootstraps me up to bring more insights to the next group and so on so and we have we've really done a a, a good job i think in in the professional development area and in higher learning in general to make the most of these remote events. So I would say to all the folks who've sat with me on, on many uh, a Zoom conference or a workshop that we did in, in Teams and 
you responded. Um, I mean, some of the key questions that, that I ask folks are, okay, you tell me what, what are the, the key things in your discipline? And it, it's so amazing that every, every single time, uh, well, not as frequently as I used to, but I'll, I'll get to talk to somebody in a discipline that I'm not familiar with. You know, I teach civics and government, or I teach air conditioning repair, and, and there's always there's always a first. Um, so that ties in as well to my, you know, great uh, love of and advocacy for whenever we can working across disciplines and that cross fertilization. So so that's a, a really really big one. I don't know if you've seen this, but I can't imagine that you wouldn't have. I, so much of it prior to the pandemic was well, you could never do that online. Or, or you could never, technology would never provide those affordances. And while I do not want to dismiss the devastation of the pandemic, and I always have to be very careful when I say this because it's had awful effects all around the world. And so I never want to be a silver lining kind of person that's not at all in this very bad time, in this very, you know, time of devastation. There are still those people, though, that the conversation feels like it's shifted to me to, how could I do this? And that those have been some really interesting conversations and that's so much with our colleagues and faculty. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree too. I mean, the, 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 the silver lining narrative is going to be one that we are, oh. we're going to need to <laughs> sort of counter that for a long time going mm. forward, but, but absolutely. And, you know, much like with a lot of, of, online learning with our online interactions, it's also sometimes not, uh, oh, here's this completely other thing that we never could do before. And now we, now we can. So how do we hang on to that now that we have given, you know, we go back in. Many people say after I taught online, uh, I picked up things I took in my face-to-face classroom. So yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. There's, there's things that we can take and, you know, instead of just straight replicate, making everything just like it was face to face, sometimes you can you can find hidden gems. I've got a perfect segue coming up for the recommendations segment, but I can't quite get to it until I start by thanking today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. If you've been listening for a while, you know that they are the longest running sponsor and are a big part of my productivity system. In fact, I just got my annual. 2020 report of how much time I saved with it. And let's just say it confirmed, I didn't need it to confirm, but it confirmed that it really does save a lot of time. And also I noticed that it sends out not just how much time you save, but your common snippets, what they call snippets, where you have these easy to remember letters or numbers or whatever it is. I For me, it's the letter Z often followed by a series of letters, Z. E-S-I-G is going to get my electronic signature, for example. And so it showed me all the ways in which it helps me be more consistent in terms of my writing and correcting things as I'm going. T-H-E is often spelled apparently T-E-H by me as I'm typing. So it's just a wonderful tool. It works across a number of platforms, including Windows and Mac, and also on the iOS operating system. So your iPhone and any tablet, uh, if you've got an iPad, for example, and it just helps us save time, be productive, and it's really easy to set up and get started. You can have it make suggestions to you. It can notice when you are 
repetitively typing the same thing. I've turned that setting off, although maybe I should turn it back on. But I find that I just, if I put my mind to it, I can find really easy ways to save a little bit of time on something simple. It could be something a little bit more complex. Like, I mean, it's not hard to set up, but I've got the show notes in there. So I just type T-I-H-E as in teaching in higher ed, S-N as in show notes, and it pops up and says, who's the episode with and when's it supposed to air and what what other information do you have in it? It just saves that time of inputting the information so I can spend a lot more time in preparing for the conversations I'll have with the guests and also in putting together the resources for the show. So once again, I'd like to thank Text Expander for sponsoring today. If you head over to textexpander.com slash podcast, you can get 20% off your first year. And you also can just try it out for a while as well. So thanks once again to Text Expander for being such an integral part of my computing life and productivity. And thanks for supporting the show in this way. And speaking of finding hidden gems, I've got one for you. It's time for the recommendation <laughs> segment, <laughs> Michelle. I heard about this television show so many different places, and I just resisted it. And I resisted it because the premise is that it is based on something about sports, and I'm not a big sports person. So I thought that's not the show for me. I finally succumbed <laughs> to the temptation and loved it and binged watched it. Ah, uh, so it's Ted Lasso, which is available on the Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus network. It's an American sitcom television series, and I'm reading now from their show description by Bill Lawrence, Jason Sudeikis, and Joe Kelly and Brandon Hunt, based on a character of that same name, Ted Lasso, that Sudeikis first portrayed in a series of promos for NBC Sports coverage of the Premier League. It is the premise of it is that a guy is a coach in the United States and then he ends up being selected to be a coach in a totally different sport that he doesn't know how to coach. And there are so many great leadership lessons in this show. It is so uplifting. It's funny and it's heart wrenching. I mean, it is just a delight, but it also is very difficult to describe that it would not if well, in fact, if I just read that description to myself, I'd be like, nah, there's plenty of other things out there that I'd really want to watch. And so I just really recommend it. And again, it's one of those things I know not everybody has subscriptions to all these services, but if you happen to have a subscription already, you can't miss it. It's just so, so, so very good. So Michelle, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Oh my goodness. Well, as a psychologist, I would be remiss if I did not tell people that, you know, in as much as people are able, exercise, movement, this is just absolutely the, the, the thing to, to, to keep doing. It's, it's is close to a, you know, magic remedy for just a cognitive, staying sharp cognitively, mood, memory, that included. There's nothing else like it. Sorry, guys, but brain games don't do it. Crossword puzzles are, are fun, but it doesn't, doesn't really quote unquote exercise your brain. But uh, that, that does. And I'll say that in my household, it's uh, mostly teenagers and, and young adults. Uh, we do enjoy the Less Mills on Demand exercise uh, subscription service. It's a uh, streaming of a variety of different programs. And I can usually get somebody in my house to uh, agree to get up a session of uh, yoga Pilates fusion or uh, cardio, cardio uh, weights or something like that. So 
we really enjoyed it. It, It's a lot of the same classes that I was taking at the local gym when that was open. So it's really nice to have that carry over into, yes, an online format. And it's from New Zealand. It's a lovely New Zealand company. So it's very international. There's every every delightful uh, version of of, uh, of of English that's out there, and the and the New Zealand accents are, are always a kick. So so we love that a lot. So that's a, a really really big one that I would put out there for people. Brain games may not help you, but some games are are just just for fun, and I think that's that's okay. I am not a, a gamer. I have never liked really liked games, board games, video games, you name it. But one finally got me. Spell Tower. <laughs> I now have a limit on my phone to playing Spell Tower. It's a sort of a cross between Tetris and Boggle and chess, and it appeals to my very, very word and verbally oriented self. Oh, these sound spectacular. <laughs> they sound just wonderful. I never heard of, I haven't heard of any of them. Well, I be, haven't heard of any of these. I've never heard of this exercise thing you speak of. Oh my gosh, it's making. <laughs> I tell you what is what is keeping me going. It's it does make such a difference. And so thank you so much for joining me today for the episode and for these wonderful recommendations. It was so great to reconnect. And what I love about us ending this episode, Michelle, is I know you'll be back because (laughs) you always do so much good stuff. And I know you'll have a book coming out at some point. As of this recording, we don't know exactly when, but I'm just looking forward to our future conversations and just love getting to continue learning from you all these years. Oh, and and you as well. And thank you for all that you're doing to, you know, help people keep growing and developing and uh, doing everything we can for our students. Thanks so much for Michelle Miller for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. It was great to reconnect and be inspired by your work in memory. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. And I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to our newly rethought, redone, reconceived weekly updates. They are now weekly. And if you have yet to subscribe, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And what that will get you is uh, highlights of the most recent episode, along with some related episodes and some resources, quotable words and such. So thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.